Tired of ads interrupting your gripping investigations? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Ads shouldn't be the scariest thing about true crime. Start listening by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash true crime ad free. That's amazon.com slash true crime ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. You're done with your Oreo? <laughs> yeah, done with my Oreo. Okay, good. Um, do we really know what happened? The brother did. The brother, that's what I thought too. Yeah. I mean, that seems like kind of obvious. Hey, do you want to talk about death? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I have Murdery thing. Happy Thursday. Thursday. Uh, it's okay. So, yeah, we, we kind of took yesterday to, uh, it's like a mental mental health day. That's how I'm going to describe that. Yeah, it was, it was not fun. But anyway, yeah. here we are. And we're still here. And we're here. Yeah. Thank you guys for listening. Yeah. You know, we, we just want to keep, like, talking about mysteries and different kinds of mysteries and, like, not put too much pressure on ourselves. <laughs> so I took down the Patreon page today, so, and I think uh, we're just going to focus on doing the pod well. Yeah. You know? Yeah, me and Mario had this conversation and, like... I don't know. I really want to put more into it and more research. Right. Um, we're juggling. We're playing with the option of every other week instead of weekly, but we don't know yet. So keep in touch. Stay in touch. Right. So, okay. So I was going to start it. Right? Yes, 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 okay, yes. Cool. I'm so excited. <laughs> let's, let's jump into it. I'm so excited. Okay. So this week I'm going to dive into this like really yes. multifaceted. Yes, yes, yes. And really, like, tragic in a way, kind of mystery or, like, set of mysteries, right? Oh, tragic, okay. Surrounding uh, so-called Lyme disease, right? Also known as Borrelia burgdorferi. Um, and we'll talk about why li- later on in kind of the second half of the oh. of the story. Um, but I'm actually going to start out um, talking a little bit about my main sources, and like you were talking, like we wanted to start doing more research too, and mm-hmm. and I felt like I this is like such a big topic. I wanted to like do more research, so I read this um, government study that was mandated by uh, Congress. The study was done in 2018. Mm. Um, it was like 80 pages long or something, and then a bunch of appendices. And then I also um, read this. What's kind of what got me um, onto this topic was this really great like personal and really informative essay by Megan O'Rourke. In the Atlantic, um, which is always great, of course. And then I listened to an audiobook um, of this book called Bitten by Chris Ooh. Newby. Um, so all three of those sources, they really like focused and talked a lot about the really horrendous 
and and honestly like needlessly agonizing and wasteful experience of people who suffer from uh these tick-borne diseases and in, in some cases and and related illnesses so um yeah you know as always like we're focused on like people right um like the humanist viewpoint right um so just keep in mind while i'm i'm going to get into like some technical details right of disease and some like um you know, more intriguing aspects of this, but it all comes back to, like, the patients, the families, the other people affected by um, what is honestly, like, a growing health crisis in America. Mm. And I didn't know that. Like, and the, and the report really talks about that, um, how it's it's this, it's not, yeah, there's not enough, like, focus on it. Um, so anyway, the and those two authors that I mentioned, Megan O'Rourke and Chris Newby, they themselves were also um, sufferers of Lyme disease. Like they're both writers, oh, wow. but they also, and their families, um, in some, in and in, in some instances, also like dealing with these sort of things. So just talking from like their personal perspective um, and telling like their story, which is like crazy. Like a lot of these stories. Um, so of the people who were like suffering from, um, especially chronic Lyme disease, which okay. we'll like get into, but that government report I mentioned, which is called tick-borne diseases working, tick-borne disease working group, 2018 report to Congress, um, makes the point that tick-borne diseases should actually be like a huge topic in, in, in America, but, it, but they're not, but it's not, um, both in terms of like the awareness of it. And especially in some parts, yeah, especially in some parts of the country, because people think of it as like, oh, that's something that happens like in New England or in Minnesota or something. But it's it's not like tick-borne diseases happen all over the country. Um, and there's not also not uh, funding um, commensurate with like the, the level of impact that these diseases have. I was trying to think of the there was like a lot of numbers in the study that I didn't like write down, but <laughs> it was like orders of magnitude, right? Like they're spending hundreds of dollars per case on tick-borne diseases and thousands of dollars per case on cancer or HIV or like other, oh, you know, okay. diabetes, yeah. heart disease, like other major uh, killers. And there are like hundreds of thousands of people apparently who are probably infected with tick-borne diseases every year in America. Wow. And apparently they're also severely underreported. Like 90% of them don't get reported. What? Um, which I guess is part of the mystery, right? It's like what, how, who exactly is getting infected with tick-borne diseases and where and how? How do they know that 90% aren't getting reported? It's based on the ones that are reported and then, I guess, rates of not reporting that they've established through research and then, like, the presence that they know because there have been some studies of ticks, but not enough. So it's it's a bit conjectural, but but yeah, three hundred to four hundred thousand was was the those were the numbers that I was seeing a lot in in my research, um, case like new cases per year. So yeah, anyway, I don't want to get too much into the weeds like on on all that stuff, but I did want to mention that you know it's about the the people like right off the bat. So anyway, let's take a little step back and explore like kind of. What like the the basic mystery surrounding like what is Lyme disease like what what exactly is it right because people throw that term around all the time but what does that mean exactly 
Now, you may think that this isn't, like, really a mystery because we do actually know the particular, like, bacterium that causes Lyme disease, Borrelia burgdorferi, um, which is this corkscrew-shaped kind of infectious bacterium yeah. called a spirochete. That's weird. Very, very disturbing. Um, if you look at, like, pictures from a scanning electron microscope or something, it's, yeah, it's very weird looking. Um, but there's major controversy actually surrounding um, multiple things, but at least two big questions. How do you know if someone has Lyme disease, right? How do you diagnose mm -hmm. it? And can Lyme disease be a chronic disease? Is that a, is chronic Lyme disease a thing? Oh. And that apparently is also very um, controversial in certain I thought it places. Was chronic? Well, we'll 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 get we'll get into that. So. Um, Let's start out, though, talking about how, how do you diagnose Lyme disease, right? This is really, like, one of the most mysterious aspects of it um, that really has, like, a, a harmful um, effect on people, right? Because, because it's so hard to um, diagnose, it makes it hard to treat, it makes it hard for you as a patient to get effective care. Because the doctors, like, does, don't really know what they're doing in terms of trying to um, diagnose Lyme disease or tick-borne diseases. So most people think of the diagnosis beginning with that hallmark bullseye rash, right? If you know anything about Lyme mm. disease diagnosis, you know the bullseye rash. Um, and that's expected to attend the, this infection. But per the working group report, quote, However, 20% of patients may not develop this specific rash, and sometimes the rash is not seen or recognized, close quote. Um, sometimes because the person has darker skin, um, sometimes because it just doesn't look like a bullseye, sometimes because there is no rash, but you still get infected, which also happens, apparently. it's a, It can be, like, all different combinations. They, no one knows. Um, so... You would think, okay, can't tell by the rash, lab testing, right? You, you can test the blood, um, you know, the lymph nodes, whatever. Except that that's <laughs> really difficult when it comes to spirochetes, those corkscrew-shaped bacteria, um, because they they essentially don't show up in the fluids, or not, not very much, um, or their, their presence isn't seen there, because they, they actually tend to... Um, uh, like drill into uh, you know like fl flesh or whatever uh, you know other substances not that is the so fluids. beyond me thinking in that scale like <laughs> I know right it's weird it, it is weird to think about that um, but when you're talking about virology well or it's not vi a virus but it's kind of that kind of thing right you have yeah you, you have to think about it on a totally different plane right it's almost like um, what, what's that microbiology. book? Right, right. But you have to get that totally different perspective where, like, the inside of a human body is like a universe. You know, that's the scale of it. So, you know, um, for this bacterium, uh, a cell is like a building. You know, it's like, how do I get in? Uh, it has to mask itself. It has all these different tricks. What book is this? Um, the book I listened to was Bitten by Chris oh, Newby. Oh, I thought you were going to mention a book... Where the human body is a universe. Oh, no, 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 no. I was trying to think of that. Uh, Flatland, where it's about different oh, perspectives yeah. and changing fundamentally your yeah. paradigm shifts. Or there was a show, a cartoon, I don't remember what it was called, but the main characters were like bacteria and they like lived in the body. Oh, yeah. It was a kid show. Yeah, I don't remember what it's called either. 
so anyway, to, <laughs> to get back to, to the right up. So um, while the CDC, right, the Centers for Disease Control and the FDA, the Federal Drug Administration, recommend those kind of lab tests, right, serology is what it's called, mm-hmm. to try to diagnose Lyme, they, they uh, endorse those tests, that this uh, specific two-tier serological tests. Um, that test has known limitations, which are quite severe, actually. Um, and in some cases that I read about, doctors will wholesale dismiss the test. They'll do the tests, right, because that's what they're told to do. But then they'll just say, well, those tests don't matter because, well, it turns out the tests have a high rate both of false positives and of false negatives. What? In other words, the test may tell you that you have Lyme disease, but it's really just detecting the signs, the the antibodies of another disease, um, which is not B. burgdorferi or any of the other ones, right? Um, So that'd be a false positive. Or it may detect... You know, it may not detect any antibodies because of B. Bergdorferi's immune escaping magic tricks, right? Um, technical oh, details. Okay. Technical details I won't go into. Um, so it would yield a false negative. So, if you can't go on a physical sign, like a rash or lab testing, right? That kind of like um, uh, quantitative uh, analysis, then how do you tell if someone has Lyme disease or doesn't have Lyme disease, right? Further complicating the picture is the fact that there's no answers. Questions, but no answers. Right? <laughs> you know that by now, right? Classic. Um, further complicating the picture is the fact that Lyme disease and other tick-borne diseases may co-infect a patient. Um, what's called comorbidity, right? You may have mm-hmm. B. burgdorferi, but you may also have Borrelia or all of these other diseases that I don't remember the name of right at this moment. <laughs> Um, some of which are spirochetes, which is terrible and disturbing, but kind of fun to say, right? Spirochete? Yeah. It's like it should be the name of your parakeet, but it's not. It's a horrible disease or a kind of bacteria. So, um, yeah, the co-infection. So a person suffering with Lyme or related illness also may have wildly different sy- symptoms. Like we, we talked about a little bit earlier, right? In the best case scenario, you and what happens most of the time, actually, is we think you notice a rash or a tick, right? So you know, okay, I might have Lyme disease. You go to the doctor, you get diagnosed with Lyme disease just based on the rash and the symptoms. You get a series of antibiotics, doxycycline or whatever, and then you're fine right after like a few weeks or something. So this is the scenario that clinicians and public health officials like to tell about Lyme disease, right? It's easy to treat. It's an infection. We know how to deal with this. It's fine. The fact that inexplicably for somewhere on the order of like 20% of patients, this isn't what happens. um, That's just not really like properly acknowledged by some of these people. That's Um, dangerous, right? Yeah, no, for sure. And 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 again, this is you know part of what they were talking about in the report. Um, So and and in those books and like everything else that I was reading about. So um, this is also where the controversy over whether chronic Lyme disease exists comes in, right? That this is kind of like, but these are the people you know who are kind of fighting over that, right? because for some people, like Megan O'Rourke that I mentioned earlier, right, the, the Atlantic, um, the author who wrote the piece in the Atlantic, 
um, who may not have gotten treated for a tick-borne disease or illness at, at the time when the initial infection occurred, or even for some people who were treated, Lyme disease turns from, you know, the flu-like symptoms that most people get to the fairly common joint pain arthritis that a lot of people experience to a lot of other much more troubling and debilitating symptoms, neurological symptoms. Some patients have also reported extreme memory loss, inability to read, vertigo, chronic pain, um, severe depression. There are inflated instances of suicide, uh, suicidality uh, surrounding you know, these infections and the issues surrounding everything else, right? Getting treatment, getting diagnosed, all of that. Um, so when these patients seek help, many doctors, um, partly because of the guidelines that they've been given, dismiss their concerns as the aches of daily life or suggest that they might be psychosomatic or mm-hmm. tied to a primarily psychological issue um, or that the, the patient may have fibromyalgia, which is very difficult to diagnose, or multiple sclerosis, which is also very difficult to diagnose. Uh, multiple sclerosis is autoimmune disease. Um some of these symptoms and autoimmune diseases and whether chronic Lyme disease is in some sense an autoimmune disease, like this is part of the mystery, like right? We don't as, as well. We, no. we don't know. <laughs> Not enough basic research has been done. Um, or, uh, yeah, so that, that whole thing. So some doctors fixate on this notion that if they can't find evidence of this supposed bacterial infection, then it must be a viral infection. That's another thing that I, I kind of came up in my reading. And um, they'll refuse to prescribe antibiotics, right? You don't want to over-prescribe antibiotics, which is good. Yeah. You don't. And that's something pe- the medical community has been harping on for years now. But, you know, you also don't want to not prescribe it if it's necessary, right? Um, in one case I read about, doctors refused to provide a patient suspected of having Lyme disease, the patient suspected he had Lyme disease, um, they, they refused to give him antibiotics uh, until it was necessary for something else that happened, and then the symptoms he was experiencing went away, in terms of like the neurological symptoms and other things that seemed to be associated with a tick, um, a tick bite. But though a regimen of antibiotics does seem to like pretty much always help, or at least usually help, um, it it doesn't in some patients ever go away. It it seems oh, to be in other words this scary. chronic Lyme disease. So um, uh, other people though, like I mentioned, like the Infectious Disease Society of America (IDSA) don't think chronic Lyme disease really exists. And they also Mm -hmm. push this highly dubious two-step lab test that I mentioned earlier Mm -hmm. as a diagnostic tool. Um, Even though, um, as I have somewhere else in my write-up, it specifically was developed not as a diagnostic tool, but as a tool just to, uh, for tracking purposes. And it was also developed back in the 70s. When, you know, our testing methods and things were like a lot different. So it's just very weird that they keep going back to that somehow. Um, so uh, that perspective is opposed by people like the International Lyme and Associated Diseases Society, ILADS. And um, it, separately, there's a whole other controversy among those people who do Ugh. agree that chronic Lyme disease exists about what to call it uh, for some reason. Oh, okay. Um, if, that I, I couldn't really get that far into the weeds, I guess. So some people say chronic Lyme disease, others say... Um, late stage, what is it? Late stage Lyme disease. Uh, other people say post 
treatment Lyme disease syndrome. What? That yeah. makes it sounds like it's in your head. Yeah. So, I mean, what, whatever you call it, though, you know, it's there. There is this growing consensus, right, that it does exist. Like you were saying, that there, there's this, uh, a common notion that it does that chronic Lyme disease exists. That it's a, a something that can happen when you when you get infected by these kind of things. Um, but apparently, that is kind of being really poorly communicated to doctors. Um, yeah, there's, like I mentioned earlier, there's there's that kind of, like, definition of Lyme disease that's yeah. not supposed to be used for diagnostics, but it still is. Um, yeah, and, and as, as if things weren't already complicated enough, there's also some mystery um, surrounding how much, and, and I mentioned this a little earlier, of, of the chronic Lyme patients suffering is because of the infection itself or because of the immune response in certain individuals, um, where what your immune system is doing to try to fight off the infection, for example, can create an inflammatory response that can cause oh, other issues, okay, right? Okay, okay. So when, you know, you see in chronic Lyme patients, as one often does, a uh, high instance of, um, uh, what am I trying to say? Um, Rash? Arthritis, of arthritis, arthritis right, which is essentially a kind of inflammation. Or uh, there's this other thing called Lyme carditis, which is um, can affect the heart and kill you. What? Where are these things coming from? What's the mechanism, right? We don't really know. But part of it may be what the body is doing to um, respond to the spirochetal infection. And then some things that the bacterium does itself... Um, to mask itself from the actual Im immune system of humans. So, yeah. This is so bizarre. So, uh, yeah, um, every case of chronic Lyme, right, and the whole thing in and of itself is is sort of a, a really confounding mystery, right? And I could talk about it all day, but go re read, read my sources and you'll learn much more. But now I want to kind of turn to the second half of my story, um, so now that we've kind of talked about some of those, the cryptic, like nitty gritty surrounding Lyme disease, let's talk about this, this other big mystery that I kind of just stumbled on, which, which I, I told oh, you. Oh, is this the surprise mystery? This the surprise mystery. You were like, yeah. there's going to be a surprise mystery. I know. You, like, you've been, awesome. you've been so excited. I've been uh, <laughs> stringing you along for several days about this. So I've mentioned Chris Newby's book, Bitten, a few times, right? So what I didn't mention is that there's a subtitle, Bitten. The Secret History of Lyme Disease and Biological Weapons. No. By Chris Newby. So, there... But it's so unpredictable. But that's why it's a good weapon, right? Well, I'll talk about that okay. a little bit. So, um, I'm so confused. Yeah, what I didn't realize when I started my research, or, or even reading that book, really, was that... Um, Chris's story wasn't only about her family experience, her experience with Lyme disease. It was also about the possibility that our current endemic levels of tick-borne disease in America might be the result of an American biological warfare program decades earlier gone wrong somehow. No. It seems it seems <laughs> far-fetched. Like, no, it does. Like, uh... It does seem far-fetched. <laughs> and I did not read about this in any of my other sources, but... She has some pretty good sources. I want to know. I want to know. So, you know, you notice how I've mentioned B. Bergdorferi a number of times, right? That, that's the scientific name, right? That's the scientific name. I've not been calling it Lyme disease. I've been calling it that partly because it's fun to say, but also partly because the reason it's called Bergdorferi is because it was discovered 
and I'm doing air quotes. By a we'll fairy? Talk no, by a Swiss-born <laughs> American scientist named Willy Bergdorfer. Bergdorfer. Okay, okay. Bergdorfer. Um, who in the 1970s supposedly discovered that it was that particular spirochetal bacterium that was causing these baffling illnesses, right, um, that people were seeing with, with the children around Lyme, Connecticut. Which is how Lyme disease got its name. Lyme, Connecticut. I think it was like 1977 or something. There okay. were like a dozen children or 20 children in these uh, rural communities around Lyme, Connecticut that were getting these this weird disease, right? Flu-like symptoms and then they'd get arthritis. But they're like 12, you know? So it's like, what's going on? Um, so, yeah, when, when Willie saw this, he said, okay, and this was the story at the time, oh, that this is like something he had seen much earlier when he was a student studying tropical diseases back in Switzerland. Um, or maybe it was when he was on a trip to somewhere else. I can't remember. But anyway, he recognized it, right? Because um, this was his thing. Like, his wheelhouse was tick-borne diseases. Um, so anyway, the his discovery, he got a bunch of medals. He became famous. It was named after him. That's where the official story kind of ends, right? Um, but let's fast forward to 2014 when Willie Bergdorfer was at the end of his life. Mm -hmm. And it was then that he made a confession, a deathbed confession, one might say. Oh, shit. And that was that the explosion of confounding chronic tick-borne diseases, according to him, were tied to his work for the American government's biological warfare program decades earlier in the 50s and 60s. Well, but I also want to know more about that. The fuck? Re re read or listen to Bitten by Chris <laughs> Newby. It's this, she'll, she tells the whole, whole story. Um, but um, what we do know is that, that this existed, right? We know that now. That there was an American biological weapons program back in the 50s, uh, 60s, and 70s, I think. And um, Willy Bergdorfer was involved it, in it as a veritable tick expert. This seems to be well established, I think. So he became essentially, the, in that period, the go-to person for certain covert programs seeking ways to infect a hostile population oh. with an inca incapacitating, is what they said, um, agent through these ticks. Now you were you were mentioning earlier. Okay, is this a good is this a good idea? Like, is this a is this an effective weapon of war or not? In the end, no. But they they explored that possibility for a long time to yeah, to make that, sure. I guess that was the question in the first place, right? Exactly. They had a lot of questions. Can you control someone else's mind? That was a question. God damn it! Can't you know? Um, can, can you like project your consciousness into another place? Like. <laughs> There are a lot of crazy kooks at the CIA <laughs> over the years. Um, we should turn into the CIA podcast. The Men Who Stare at Goats. Have you ever heard of that? There's the, that movie? Yeah. Yes. I know, right? Yeah, you could. You definitely could have a whole podcast about all the fucked up crazy shit about the CIA. So anyway, um, Willie ran this covert entomological consulting business out of what was then the foremost repository, uh, one of, of ticks in, in the whole world. Uh, research laboratory called Rocky Mountain Laboratory in uh, Hamilton, Montana. And um, this work, um, you know, may have included trying to create specific co-infections or otherwise tweaking mm. the various diseases and the ticks into which they were forcibly infected by people like Willie to create the perfect weapon of war for the Cold War. 
because in the minds of these military planners, ah, what they were shit. thinking at the time is, yeah. okay, this you could send it in, right, incapacitate the population um, without them even necessarily knowing what's happening. They just get these diseases and they don't even know. That is so fucked up. It is. It is. It's it's like sinister to the nth degree. It's like, crazy. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> like, who, what the fuck? Who's the who's the capacity to even like? I know. I I think that this was specifically in the military. I can't remember, but anyway. So um, Willie seems though to have been sort of minimally even minimally like engaged with these sort of like moral implications like while he was involved in the work it seems like he he pretty much justified it to himself there there weren't too many options for his kind of work right in rural montana right. in the 60s right. exactly and willie was deter and you may say okay well he could go somewhere else but willie was determined to stay in hamilton montana he loved ha- he fell in love with mm. hamilton montana i hope that doesn't happen to us um he called it God's country. I'll never call any God, any country God's country. So, um, he also fell in love with one of the lab technicians at the Rocky Mountain Laboratory, um, a, a lady named Gertrude, who everyone called Dale, and uh, they okay. married. Um, I think about a year or two after he got there, and um, eventually Willie became a citizen. He wanted to. Like I said, remain in Montana, remain in America, remain gainfully employed um, with his two kids. You know, he had got to feed the kids. Um, Willie made the necessary sacrifices in terms of time, personal integrity to help develop this kind of perfect infecting agent. They hoped transmitted through ticks, um, spent so many hours infecting and dissecting ticks, all this stuff. As time went on, the years passed, Willie... Retired in 1986 to assist his ailing wife. Um, many, many more years go by. It sort of starts to gnaw at him, it seems, on his conscience, what he did all those years later. And I'm sure seeing all of these tick-borne you know, disease infections didn't help. Um, because, again, in his mind, he's partly responsible for this. Um, so he also knew again, according to him, that the official story that the government had told the public all the way back in the 70s was not the whole truth. Mm. Willie, according to his deathbed confession, didn't really discover Beeborgder Ferry at all. Uh, in fact, he recognized it as the same spirochetal bacterium that he had seen had essentially mm. helped develop yeah. 20 years earlier at the Rocky Mountain Lab in Montana. Okay. And now he's seeing it in rural Connecticut. But he can't say anything. Right, because that would give that would give away the, the conspiracy. <laughs> that would give away the covert program. The bio, you know. Wow. So anyway, after four decades of keeping it in, Willie, I guess, wanted to lose his terrible secret. Right, Lyme disease, especially chronic Lyme disease, may be an unintentional result of mishandling or bad practices when the biological weapons tests were done. Um, some in America on the unsuspecting public, without their consent. So what? They they poured some ticks into the forest and waited? Or how does that even work? Um, excuse me. I'm trying to remember exactly. I think there were some tests that were done not necessarily with um, ticks, per se, but just with the it, infectious agents, like, um, you know, uh, like, released into the air, into a subway system. <laughs> now, the, at the time, they said these were all innocuous infecting agents, right? <laughs> 
They're not. They're not intentionally infecting. They're not like um, Om Shinrikyo or something. Yeah, I was right? gonna say that. I know. I know. Om that's immediately Shinrikyo what came to your shit. mind. <laughs> but we've found out since that some of the supposedly innocuous infecting agents that they used may not have been so innocuous. So, yeah, there is that side to but it as well. But it's just a deathbed confession. Right. 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 But that's isn't it intriguing? Crazy. Isn't it intriguing? Um, so yeah, he, he claimed, and so the others, maybe even more disturbing possibility is that it wasn't actually the Americans doing it unintentionally, but it was the Soviets who, um, reportedly engaged in a parallel development of biological weapons, right? One of these races these they talk about, right? Um, so one of them could have obtained the infecting agent, the tick, uh, developed by the Americans and turn it back on the American people themselves. That's a possibility. <laughs> Willie claimed that he didn't know which it's was ridiculous. true, but he 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 assumed that it was one of those possibilities. He also did claim that the American biological weapons program had been infiltrated successfully by a Soviet spy what? at some point. Allegedly. <laughs> Allegedly. So, as usual, we're left with Questions, not answers, right? A myriad of mysteries. Um, does our current national affliction with Lyme disease stem from the sins of our toying with biological warfare? Chloe, does it? Do you have an answer? No? No answer? I... Okay. How exactly Maybe? should we define Lyme and related diseases? And most importantly, how can our country, the medical community, right, do better for do better for the people <laughs> it's it's serious a lot do better for the people dealing with Lyme disease and, and other related disease I mean it's just a tragedy that we haven't figured this shit out like the story read anything about this and you'll immediately be have uh, 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 in, you'll be enraged like because these people just have to go through so much bullshit dozens of doctors thousands of dollars hundreds of miles like they have to fucking go through hoops because they live in the wrong place and they got bitten by a tick like it's crazy anyway always check for ticks you guys and check for ticks yeah it's strip this, naked. this has definitely made me a lot more um fucking uh wary of ticks oh, yeah. and other stuff like walking around so anyway my sources like i said bitten by chris newby the megan o'rourke article in the atlantic tick-borne disease working group 2018 report to congress robert hadaya at psychology today and wikipedia the willie bergdorfer page the willie bergdorfer page willie bergdorfer <sighs> so yeah that was mine for this oh, week that was crazy yeah i don't even know what to do with that <laughs> now let's like Speaking Chloe, Chloe of the Soviet Union, what? I am going to talk about the Amber Room. Okay. So, uh, this is a pretty well-known mystery. And I've so never as, heard of Really? No. Oh, so as the world, it's one of the many World War II mysteries. And as I, as I was looking into it, the timeline and the history of it all is kind of confusing simply because at this time it was a lot of he said, she said type of communication. You know what I mean? So, okay, let's let us begin. The Amber Room. Um, this all begins in the 18th century, very beginning, 1701. It was uh, right at the beginning of the century. Yeah. So it was to be in it was scheduled to be installed at Charlottenburg Palace. 
Um, so this is when Prussia existed. So it belonged to the first king in Prussia, Frederick, and his wife, Stephanie Charlotte, wanted it built. And so, you know, they got all these people together, all these artisans, um, blacksmiths, architects. The concept and design was done by Andreas Schluter. And he is um, a master craftsman, along with master craftsman uh, Gottfried Wolfram. And they also had people who specialized in, in the substance of amber, um, Ernst Schacht and Gottfried Trau. Should have looked those up, shouldn't I? And so this is, um, this in construction goes between 1701 and 1709. In 1713, uh, Frederick I dies. And his son, Frederick William, uh, he takes over and he looks and he, he actually halts the project. He halts construction on the room and he stores the unfinished panels in Berlin. So it was eventually installed at Berlin City Palace. And one day in 1716, it was visited by Peter the Great of Russia and... Um, our Frederick William, he gave the room as a gift to Peter. So this was like the beginning of the Russian-Prussian alliance versus like Sweden. So cool. the Amber Room was first a like um, a tool, a bargaining tool, and mm. it ended up being that way. Even a diplomatic pawn, right? E it ended up being that way even after we think it disappeared. People hmm. were using it as a pawn. People meaning Moscow. And then we'll, we'll, I, I'll talk, I touch on that a little bit later um, as, one of, as one of the theories. So at this time, it goes through many, many renovations. Um, eventually, it was covered, um, it covered 590 square feet, it was pretty big, with 13,000 pounds of amber. What? Yeah. So it was um, a wonder of the artistic world and an eighth wonder of the world. It's it's practically priceless. Um, so it has it has panels that are nine hundred ninety nine pounds of amber, and there were gold there were gold leaf in, inscriptions on there and gemstones and all these beautiful mirrors and and statues of children and angels and it was beautiful right sweet baby angels sweet baby angles <laughs> so the modern estimates like there was one in 2007 and that one the modern estimate for that was 142 million dollars and the estimate in 2016 was 500 million dollars so ching pricey wow. pricey um so you know it's beautiful and you know it's being reworked again and it's moved to Catherine Palace where the Royal Russian family spends their summers. So it was officially finished in 1770 and it was used as also like a private meditation space. It was um, a reception room. It was a trophy room for um, uh, even for Alexander II. He, he's a slut for Amber and loves Amber. Um <laughs> Which is weird because amber is like just sap, kind of. 
Yeah, it's but like you, resin, like you very polish old. it up, you know. Yeah, it's like millions of years old, though. Yeah, yeah, it gets all what's called ossified. Yeah, is that the word? Calcified? No, that's Calcified. something totally different. I'm so sorry. We're moving on. Okay, finished in 1770. Uh, lasts many, many years, hundreds of years, until 1933, when that motherfucker Hitler becomes chancellor Man, of fuck Germany. That motherfucker. I just, anytime Hitler's mentioned anywhere, I just get angry. Terrible. By default. Watching Glorious Bastards. <laughs> oh, how satisfying. Right. So, uh, <laughs> Play this is when the whole, this is when World War II gets off. Right. You know. Sure. The, the beginnings, the, the roots. The of, invasion of Poland, etc. Right, right, right. Um, so officially starts in 1939, right? And... The Amber Room comes into place during Operation Barbarossa, which I think I'm saying right. I think have I heard I think I've heard of that before. I don't know, maybe. Um Barbarossa was oh shit. He was like a I don't even remember who he was, but he was in like I don't know, the seventeenth, eighteenth century. I think no no no, it might have been earlier. I think he was Roman. I don't remember. Hmm. Um but Operation Barbosa. Yes. Sunday, June 22nd, 1941. Uh, Hitler orders his troops, fucking Nazis, uh, an invasion. And they opened up the Eastern Front. And so this was a pretty... The Eastern Front itself was huge, huge part of the war, right? Um, and so, like... A part of their... I don't even know what this says. All part of their crazy plan... Okay. Gary, what am hearing? So, yeah, yeah, it was. It was all part of this insane plan to take everything valuable from Russia. Take it all. I'm talking art, jewels, priceless artifacts... At really anything and and Hitler had like a whole group of like kleptomaniacs that like plundered it's seriously and like there's um eventually falls in the hand of someone else and this guy like uh has a record of like 600 some stolen like art pieces from like the places that's fucked up um but you know Hitler's whole idea of like erasing everything and starting with Germany and sure. like that's exactly what he wanted to do well that was the whole Third Reich idea right yeah. it's like this yeah. is the Third Reich like this is the one that'll last for a thousand years and blah blah bullshit oh, suck my dick okay <laughs> uh, so yeah the goal was to take over the Slavic people and you know make everyone German or something whatever uh over the course of the operation, over 3 million personnel invaded the 1,800-mile front. Wow. Yeah. So this was a highly influential influential battle in World War II. Um, it was one of the largest with the most casualties. Um, 5 million Red Army troops captured, um, captured people and... The Nazis deliberately killed about 3.3 million Soviet uh, prisoner of wars. So they had, of course, concentration camps. Um, they were put through death marches, starvation, torture. And although they, um, the operation ended up failing, 
um, the Soviet forces during the Battle of Moscow ended up pushing back the German troops. That's what happened. So toward the beginning of the operation, the curators of the Amber Room were told to disassemble and remove it. Um, But at that point, the Amber had dried out and become, it was super brittle. So they couldn't, yeah, they couldn't really move it. So... Oh, what they did was they, um, so the curator, Anatoly Kuchimov, so him and his team basically covered up with, like, wallpaper, like, the entrance with, like, wallpaper and gauze and tried to make a blend in, but obviously it didn't work because the Nazis busted it and took it. Um, it was immediately found by the Nazis. So, am I in the right place? Okay, yes, 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 yes. So, um, they find it, they have it obtained. So, the crews took 36 hours to take out the panels and dismantle the room. Wow. Um, so, it fit into crates, and then it was, like, put on a train, or there's some cl- conflicting information of how many crates and um, if it was on a train or a boat, but it eventually um, uh, got over there. And so it was now under the control of Alfred Rosenberg. And he's one of those people who's like huge klepto, um, crazy sucking Hitler's dick. Sorry. I get so vulgar when I talk about, <laughs> I'm just sorry. Inglorious um, bastards. Oh, this is how they talk in that movie. Fuck. So I think it's okay. That's true. Um, so the room continued to be moved around. Um, it evacuated in Konigsberg, Octo- which is now Kaliningrad, Germany, I believe. Oh, I've heard of it, yeah. Um, sure. October 14th, 1941. It eventually went on display in Kon- Konigsberg Castle in April 1942. Um it was open to the public, and it was last seen sometime in 1943. So, like, a little more details on, like, last seen. It's kind of confusing exactly when... Because we don't know, right? We don't know if it was bombed or or if it was disassembled and taken out somewhere before mm. then. Um, but it was last seen sometime in 1943. So, the bombs, right? There was lots and lots of bombing from the Soviets between 1941 and 1945, uh, specifically in Konigsberg. So, April 28th, 1943, the Soviets dropped the largest bomb that they had, like the largest bomb in their possession, called the... Okay, I don't know bombs. It's called either the Fab 5000 or the FAB 5000. I like Fab 5000. Thank you very much. Um, It weighed 11 pounds, and dropped it huge huge extremely destructive um april or no august of 1944 um more explosives were dropped it just it it was continuous um at that point they estimated that uh 20% of like the industrious industry buildings were taken out and 41% of housing was destroyed um april 9th 1945 Soviets finally occupy the city. They take it over. Um, at this point, there's about 90% of the city is destroyed, and the rest of the Germans who are there are ex- expelled. So, ba- I mean, basically, after after all of the bombing, that's where everything got lost. The, the Amber Room was 
I mean, yeah, it was like never seen again, even to mm. this day. So it could have just been destroyed in the bombing that day. That's one of the one theories, of right? Yeah. Um, June 1945, Soviet investigator Alexander Brusov concludes that the room destroyed that the room was destroyed in the heavy bombing. Um, but the Soviet Union doesn't officially abandon the search until 1979. Hmm. So presumably they know something. Right. Right. Um, in 1992, Boris Yeltsin, uh, the Russian president at the time, did we talk about him? Uh, prime minister? I think it'd be prime minister, maybe, probably. Anyway, what, did we talk about him? Um, have we talked about him before? Yeah, did he get poisoned? Yeltsin? No. You're, you're thinking of, um, Boris Nemtsov. Boris Nemtsov, Different Boris, okay. That was also at a different time. (laughs) Okay. Okay. And so he, yeah, so he approves an agreement to have uh, the German art that was stolen by the Red Army to return. Uh huh. Um, for them to go ahead and get that back. So funds start to be raised to make a replica of the Amber Room, and it was fully restored and open to the public in 2003. And so it still stands there today. The main theory as to what happened, there's there's a couple, I wrote down two main theories, because there's many, many, many. Um, so the one I kept coming across was a huge investigation by investigative journalists Catherine Scott Clark and Adrian Levy. They did a huge search into, into the room. So... And they put it all together in a book called The Untold Story of the Greatest Hoax of the 20th Century. So, basically, it concludes that the room was destroyed, was destroyed, but it was destroyed by the Red Army, by the Soviets, not the Nazis. So they're saying that Moscow deliberately covered up what really happened because they were, like, too embarrassed or they didn't, they couldn't own up to the fact Mm. that, quote, Soviet soldiers had destroyed one of Russia's finest treasures, end quote. Okay. Wow. That's one, that's one of the theories. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's based on documents from the Central State Archive of Literature and Arts. So those, there's documents there that also mention um, the, the curator, Kuchimov. He was sent to investigate what happened about, um, I think it was about six years later. So sometime in the 50s, late 40s, early 50s. Um, so he looked in, he looked at Konigsberg Castle, where it last was, and he interviewed, um, a man named Paul, how do I say this, Feyerabend, who he, okay, so he was a manager of a bar that used to be in the torture chamber of Konigsberg's castle. So, uh... He interviewed him. He had a pretty great, great quote, and I just, I have it here. A great quote. A great quote. This is from um, an article in The Telegraph by Tom Parfit. Um, Quote, At the beginning of April 1945, the packed Amber Room stood in the Knights Hall. Several days later, the city's resistance began. I was located in the cloakroom and and the Knights Hall during... I was located in the cloakroom and, and the night's hall during the attack. On the afternoon of April 9th, I hid in the wine cellar and several with several servants. Later, with their agreement, I hung from the northern wing of the castle a white flag as a sign of surrender. 
At 11.30 p.m. that night, a Russian colonel came. When I told him everything, gave statements, he ordered the evacuation of the castle. At 12.30 a.m. the next day, when I left, my restaurant was occupied by artillery regiments of the Red Army. The cellar and the Knights Hall were not damaged at all. However, after I came back from El Bing, where I had been in, in the hospital, I heard from the castle director that the Knights Hall and the restaurant had been burned down. End quote. So you said they burned it down. Wow. Presumably not realizing what they were doing. Right. Jesus. Yeah. Um, so that that also comes from the, like, oh, like, let's pretend it's still here because, like, ooh, it was destroyed. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Mm. Um, so the, that's why they would have kept up the pretense of looking at Ford until 1979, you're saying? Yeah. Possibly. Yeah. yeah. Um, others really do believe that it still exists. Um, one of the more credible ones that I found were treasure hunters Leonard Bloom, Peter Lore, and Gunter Eckhart. Um, they examined reports that were compiled by uh, Stacy Stasi. It's it was the it was basically oh, the Stasi. Yeah. The Stasi it was yeah, basically the security police. for uh, Germany, right? Germany. Huh? The Stasi. Uh, yeah, it was like I think so. Yeah, okay. they were like the secret police part of the Nazis. Yes, and. It was compiled by the Stasi and the KGB. Um, so they looked through a lot of witness reports and or reports was the Stasi in general. With the Russians? It was. I'm pretty sure it was Germany. Okay. Because on Wikipedia it said like the German Republic of blah 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 because oh, Germany okay. is actually called the German Republic of sure. whatever. Um, okay, so yeah, we've got these treasure hunters here um, doing some research. And through the research, they found they find the quote Prince's Cove, um, which is security for Germany in in eight, in nineteen eighty nine. Does that say security? I think it says security. Um, I'm sorry. <laughs> um, what is it? My note says security for Germany in 1989, but they heard about that, and they, uh, it, it's located outside a town close to the Czech border, so they went in with radars and shit, and they found, quote, a very big, deep, and long tunnel system, and we detected something that we think could be a booby trap, end quote. That's what Leonard Bloom said. Uh, so basically, now they're, like, waiting for funding, because they really think mm. there's something there, but who knows? Huh. Um, really, the last theory was that it was just straight up. It was straight up destroyed by the Soviets after the after the war. Right. Um, they just took it out. Hmm. So is all that money missing? Who knows? Who knows? But my sources were Amber Room, uh, the Wikipedia page for the Amber Room, and the Wikipedia page for the Battle of Konigsberg. And the Telegraph article by Tom Parfit, which I quoted from, and an article in The Independent. Cool. That's key. <laughs> That's super cool. Uh, thanks for listening, y'all. Go Team Mystery! Yay, another week. Another week is up the check a mark on the to-do list. Right. That's cute, right? Do you uh, have weird shit in the news? Mm, I don't have weird shit. Not really. I think we can issue the weird shit in the news this week. I haven't. I've been less social media ing lately because yeah. I'm addicted to a video game. But you know what? I mean, 
<laughs> That's cool. Thank you guys well, so, thank so much you guys. for listening. Yeah. Follow us on all the social media Instagram, Instagram Twitter. Facebook, Twitter. Bye. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Tired of ads interrupting your gripping investigations? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Ads shouldn't be the scariest thing about true crime. Start listening by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash true crime ad free. That's amazon.com slash true crime ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.